I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. I wanted to, um, I wanted to start tonight by just uh, uh, having us, I, I, I want you to, to think about and think through uh, why doing a series like this is important. Why is it important that we do this kind of series so that we're looking at what it is that we believe and to some extent why it is that we believe what we believe and, and why that is so important. Um, it is important for us as adults, but I can assure you it's far more important for our children, for our students, uh, for those who are going to uh, live in a world and are already living in a world that's vastly different uh, than the world in which uh, we grew up in. So if you send any student off to a secular university in our day, I promise you that everything the Bible teaches uh, will be brought under question. And it will be brought under question and scrutiny by men and women who have PhDs in philosophy and PhDs in biology and PhDs, and it goes on and on and on. And uh, you want your students sent off to college to respect and honor their teachers, and uh, they don't have, most of them don't have a solid enough biblical foundation or uh, a place to stand doctrinally that uh, they really know what they believe or know why it is that they believe what they believe. I wanted to uh, show you this book um, this is a very, very accessible book, a very readable book. It's done by Elisa Childers. Elisa Childers was a member of the contemporary Christian group um, Zoe Girl. Some of you may have heard of that group. Uh, she sang with them. They had a lot of uh, hits uh, as they were singing. And a faithful follower of Jesus who uh, was drawn into a church that... Um, was uh, considered itself a progressive church, and this church was preaching a false gospel that was uh, very alluring, very inviting, and uh, she got hooked up in it, and uh, it led her completely astray. And she, uh, as a result of that experience, wrote a book called Another Gospel. And again, it's, it's one of the most, uh, it's very well written, and it's very accessible, I picked it up because I heard about it on a podcast, and um, uh, you could read this book in a night, um, and it's uh, very good, so uh, you might want to have a look at that. Um, up, until, up until about the um, 19th century, uh, in almost every tradition of the Christian faith, Protestant tradition of the Christian faith, and almost every one, uh, children, uh, were not baptized until they were catechized. Now, what I mean by that is they were not baptized until they were taught the Word of God 
And, and then they could, uh, they could discuss intelligently at the level of children doctrine. And uh, in the uh, 17th century, I brought this tonight to show you. In the 17th century in Holland, uh, this was the four-volume set that parents use to instruct their children in Christian doctrine. And the title of it is The, the Christian's Reasonable Service. And it's all about what somebody needs to know biblically and how that biblical truth is applied in life in order to be a part of the church, in order to be a uh, faithful follower of Jesus. Um, This is mind-blowing to us, to any of us in this room. Uh, This kind of thing is mind-blowing to us in our day, to think that somebody would invest that much time and that much energy and that much effort in teaching children the truth of God. But you've got to understand that in that era, the most important book to Christians was the Bible, and the most important reality in a child's life was not where they were educated and what degree they had. The most important element was not even that they became Christians. That was essential. What was most important was that the children grow up to know the Word of God and to be able not only to declare the Word of God, but to be able to defend the Word of God. So they spent hours uh, in, in place of things that we spend hours uh, doing otherwise. Uh, they, would, uh, they would gather their children uh, at night uh, after they had had their meal, and they would instruct them uh, around a table in the truth of God, the various doctrines uh, of the Bible. And... And, and doctrine has to be known because it, it has to do with everything we are as a church, and it has to do increasingly uh, with battles, uh, issues that, that the church will face increasingly. Let me just give you two examples, and I don't want to go deep into either one of them, but two just very recent examples where the issues are complex and often confusing and can create chaos, but these are very real issues. Uh, you may have seen both of them. Um, Max Licato, in the year 2004, which is, what, 17 years ago, he preached a sermon in which he made it very clear that marriage was for one man, for one woman, for life. Now, I hope everybody in this room would say, amen, <laughs> that's true. Well, he was invited last year to preach at the National Cathedral in Washington, which is owned and operated by the Episcopal Church in America, and the congregation there is overwhelmingly LBGQT+. And uh, they uh, disinvited him, canceled him, that in our cancel culture. They canceled Max Licato. Max Licato, if you've read his writings, you could have watched over the last 10 years Max Lucado becoming increasingly liberal. It's just happened over the course of the decade. Max Lucado wrote a letter, you can find the letter, uh, to the National Cathedral apologizing to his LBGQT friends. And in that letter, he affirms that he believes that marriage is for a man and woman, but this is what he says. We all recognize that faithful people can uh, see this issue from the perspective of the Bible in different ways. That's a biblical theological issue. 
And I would pray that nobody here tonight and nobody in the church would say, yeah, I see that. We could see it differently. No, we can't. Uh, That is biblically a very settled issue. Uh, The other one is one that causes women to throw shoes and Bibles and books at the preacher. But the, the resignation or the withdrawal of Beth Moore from the Southern Baptist Convention has been in the news, all over the news. It made front page headlines in the Washington Post. And, and people, have, uh, people have called me, texted me, all of that about it. It's, it's, this has been going on for a long time, this whole issue with Beth Moore for several years. Uh, and it's very complex. It's very complicated. It's not a single issue uh, thing, but for us, it's a biblical issue because it's a theological issue, and the theological issue is the doctrine of the church and the expansion of the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of denominations. Now, any one of you in this room could choose to leave this church. I pray you wouldn't, but you could choose to leave this church. I would pray that you would not go to Channel 6 or Channel 12 and announce that. And you wouldn't have an article published in the True Citizen or the Augusta Chronicle to announce that. Because biblically, that is a private matter between an individual and a church. An individual and a denomination. So once you make it public, you have usurped the biblical teaching on what a church is. Now, then what you've got to do is ask this question. Why would somebody do that? What would motivate a person to make public what is biblically not to be made public? Now you're dealing with the real issue. The real issue is, is, has nothing to do with what you're reading uh, in various reports on what happened, and there are all kinds of people saying all kinds of things that are all over the map, but nobody's getting to the core biblical issue. <laughs> core biblical issue is the doctrine of the church. That if, if you leave a church, that, well, if you leave a church, the first thing you do is you, you go and talk with the pastor or, and some of the elders of the elders, and you let them know that I'm leaving this church because you're preaching heresy. And you show the preacher the heresy. That's the reason for leaving a church, that the preacher and those who lead the church are teaching heresy. There are no other reasons that are biblically legitimate. So these are issues that are real, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse in our culture so that we need to know what we believe, not just for our own sake, but we need to be able to talk to our children and our grandchildren We need to be able to talk to our students. We need to be able to talk to one another about issues of importance. And the issues of ultimate importance are the biblical and theological issues. And we need to know uh, what those issues are and why they matter. So that's why we're talking about them. And if you just want to read a good book and you're a reader, this is a good one to read. I would encourage you to get it um, and read it. And you can borrow my copy if you'll bring it back. Sometime. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night together and uh, pray your blessings on our time tonight. Uh, We pray that as we look at tonight those attributes that you share with us, you've chosen out of your goodness to share with us, 
that uh, we would see how it is that you have made us in your image and you have made us to relate to you and to reflect your glory. And then as we begin to talk about your will, help us to see not from any other source but your word, what your word teaches us about your holy, righteous, pure, and perfect will. And bless our time together tonight. May we honor you in what we say and in what we do, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about the incommunicable attributes of God, that is, those attributes of God that he doesn't share with us. They, are, they belong only to God. Tonight, we're going to talk about the communicable attributes of God, and biblically, we begin with what is the crossover or connecting attribute, and it's the attribute of holiness. Now, the Bible uses the concept of holiness in two ways. One of those ways God does not share with us. One of those ways is that God is absolutely pure and perfect. God is morally blameless. We are not. We never will be. God doesn't share that with us. But the basic word for holiness used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God is set apart. God is set apart. Now, we do share that, because the moment you give your life to Jesus, there are two things that begin to be true in that moment. Number one, you no longer belong to yourself. Who you are begins to die in that very moment. You no longer belong to yourself. Number two, you no longer belong to this world. So in that moment of what we call conversion, in that moment of surrendering your life to Jesus, you become an individual who's set apart to God. Your whole life belongs to God, and you connect your life with other people who have the same commitment. Now turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to look at some text here that confirm this truth. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. That's about holiness. How do we imitate God? We imitate God by living set apart from the world and set apart to live in obedience to God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sensual, uh, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be a named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, this text continues, but you get, the, you get the force of it. We, as God's holy people, belong to God, and, 
and how the world operates and how the world thinks. We don't operate that way anymore, and we don't think that way anymore. Now, I don't know what women get to do when they get together in small groups. I probably don't want to know. But I do know that when men get together in small groups, there can be filthy language. There can be foolish talk. There can be crude joking. Now, God just says in Ephesians 5, 4, that if you're a believer, you're set apart to God, and none of that belongs to your life. This is not something that we can sneeze at or laugh at. We are God's holy people. Go go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. These are verses that just make it clear to us. Hebrews 12, verse 10. Uh, He's talking here about God's loving us, and because he loves us, he disciplines us. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, that is, our fathers. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So God brings us under his discipline and he develops and disciples us through his punishment of us in those seasons when we are living in disobedience to him. And he does it to grow us in holiness. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's another passage that uh, just makes it very clear. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. Since it is written, and Peter here is quoting Leviticus, the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. Thomas Watson, who was a great Puritan writer who wrote probably the best book on Christian doctrine ever written, says, holiness is the most sparkling jewel in his crown. It is the name by which God is known. Psalm 11, Psalm 111, Psalm 111 verse 9 He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The Bible clearly, consistently communicates that God's name in its essence is holy. That's his name. He's set above, set apart. He's perfect and pure. Isaiah chapter 6, verse Three, when the cherubim and the seraphim cry out to God, they cry out about who he is. Isaiah 6, verse 3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is his essence. If we would know God, we must know him as holy. If we do not know him as holy, we will not know him. And if we do not know God in his holiness, then we will exalt something else in our own relationship to him above being holy. 
Now, in every age of the church, there are, I mean, I hope, I hope you know this and all of us affirm this, Satan and his demons are active. They're energetically active. They are aggressively active. And they want to deceive believers into seeing, thinking, conceptualizing God as something other than he is. In our era, in the era in which we live, in the context in which we live, we have replaced the essence of God as holy for the essence of God as love. We've given in to that seduction. If God is holy, then the essence of who we are is to be holy. If God is love, then we don't pay much attention to our behavior because we conclude that he loves us anyway, which is true. And even if we're participating in sexual immorality and crude joking and cursing and all of those kinds of things, it's no big deal to us because we presume God's forgiveness. Rather than recognizing that the essence of God is that he is holy, And what we are to be as of first importance is holy. Let's go back to Psalm 99. It was our psalm for today. I found it quite amazing that I knew I would be teaching uh, on the holiness of God and our holiness tonight. And I could not have planned it better to have Psalm 99 read this morning in worship. I didn't plan it that way. It just fell that way by God's design. Three times in this psalm, we are told that God is holy. That's his name. Let's just read it again. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Here's the first time. Holy is he. Why should we tremble? Why should the earth quake? Why should the rulers of the earth tremble? Because they are ruled over by a holy God. The governor of this state, the mayor of this town, the president of these United States should stand in overwhelming awe of God. Whose calling is it to remind leaders in political places that they do not govern for themselves or by themselves, they govern under the hand of God? It's the responsibility of the church to make that clear that it's God who rules and reigns, not any person in any place or position of political appointment. Verse 4, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Don't exalt the king. Don't exalt anyone in a place of power in a political office because they're simply ruling at the authorization of God, and God is holy. This is the second time. In verse 5, holy is he. 
And verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Now, that's foundational, that God has chosen to share with us his holy character and to give us of his Holy Spirit what is needed and everything that is needed so we can offer our lives to him in holiness and live as his holy people. Now, you will find every day that is the hardest thing you will have to face. That you're around people every day whose lives are not devoted to holiness. But you are. Because you belong to God. And your greatest witness is to show them in the context of where you are that you belong to God. That there are some things you will not say, some things you will not do, some activities in which you will not participate because you belong to God. And God uses that as an effective witness to people because you are demonstrating his holy character. If love supersedes holiness, then your love will be fleshly and worldly and will not represent the character of God. That's what's happened in our culture. That's why Max Licato can say, I believe that marriage is for one man and for one woman, but people of faith can read the Bible and come to different positions on that matter. No, that's not loving. That's hateful. Because it doesn't emerge out of holiness. It emerges out of a love that is translated as tolerance. You and I do not have the ability to love except as God has loved us and gave himself for us. And out of God making us holy, we then express that as genuine love to people. Genuine love to people means a lot of things. It means sometimes we have to say to people what we don't want to say. Do you agree? And we have to say that to them because we love them. It means that we have to withhold from people some things they want from us because we love them. And we love them in the name of Jesus. Now this last one is, I, I don't know if any of us know exactly how big this is in our day. This is big. God shares with us his justice God wants us to do what is right. And these last words are important. God wants us to do what is right as defined by his word. Not as defined by our culture. Now there is a major movement right now in our country. It's across the board, north to south, East to West, it is found primarily 
on every college campus in this country. I don't think there's one that is uh, immune from this, and it's a movement known as social justice. It's not biblical justice. That's the problem. It's social justice. And it has captured young people completely. And in, in the case of many young people who have heard the gospel and in many cases believe the gospel and have been raised in the church, they have exchanged the gospel of Jesus Christ for social justice and they've made the practice of social justice the expression and execution of the gospel. And it's leading many people astray, and it will lead to despair and defeat and disappointment and ultimately devastation. Now, let me tell you how social justice works. Social justice divides the whole world, the whole world, into two categories. Those who oppress and those who are the oppressed. That's the only two categories that exist in the world. Those who oppress and those who are oppressed. Now, if you went to school or college in the 70s, 80s, um, not much before then because all of this came out of the revolution in the 60s in America, you would have been introduced to Karl Marx and the writings of Karl Marx and in the writings of Karl Marx, it wasn't the oppressors and the oppressed. The language was different. The concepts were the same. It was the haves and the have-nots. Two groups of people. Social justice is eliminating the oppressors and elevating the oppressed. It assumes that what we need in the world is absolute equality across the board. And it assumes that if we will provide the right help at the right time in the right way, that we can eliminate any vestiges of prejudice and racism, we can eliminate all poverty. We can eliminate entirely the upper class, the lower class, and the middle class, and we could all be in the same class. And when we get to that place, the kingdom of God will have arrived. So it, is, it does not focus on the preaching and teaching of the gospel in order to do what is right as defined by the Word of God, it focuses on eliminating all kinds of inequities, economic inequities, education inequities, class inequities, ethnic inequities, status inequities, sexual inequities. So, if I stand here tonight and say, since we've already used this example. If I say to you, 
that the Bible teaches that marriage is for one man and one woman forever, and there are no exceptions, what have I just told you about myself? Now, we're in church, and you're supposed to think, well, I've just, you just told me you believe the Bible. No, no, no. According to our culture, what I've just told you is I'm an oppressor. I'm an oppressor because I have asserted an absolute standard by which most of our culture does not live. If I, let's, let's, let's get real here. You want to get real? If I said the Bible says that we are to minister to the poor, but on the day Jesus comes, there will be people who are poor. How long will we have the poor? Until Jesus comes. Jesus never called us to eliminate poverty. He called us to preach the gospel to all people, to preach the gospel to the poor, because if somebody's in poverty, what they need more than money is Jesus. Would you agree? We're not going to eliminate that system. If I were to say to you that God made every human being in his image, and that God has called us to relate to him and to reflect his glory, and that one of the ways we reflect his glory is by giving ourselves to diligent and dutiful work for the, for the, um, for the goal in part of earning income and establishing a life, and if I choose not to pursue that goal, I'm not only... I'm not only a sinner who's sinning, I'm a person who is defying God. So if I say, look, I'm, I'm in poverty and it's, it's the role of the church or the government or whoever to take care of me so we can lift everybody up out of that poverty, I have just denied the, some of the basic teaching of the Word of God. Justice is our doing what is right as defined by the Word of God. And this social justice movement has so captured our culture that there are those who believe, and they believe sincerely, if we work hard enough and give enough time and effort to the process, we can eliminate poverty, we can eliminate bad housing, we can eliminate hunger, we can eliminate all these social ills, and what will come to the earth is the kingdom of God. We can build the kingdom of God. It's, it's a teaching that is far from being biblical, but it's being billed as biblical all over our country and particularly among uh, many people on our college campus. I want to just stop here and see if you have any comments, if you have any questions, because I'm telling you, uh, this is a big, big issue, and it's uh, facing us in the church because there are many of those on college campuses that don't want to go to churches that are preaching and teaching the Word of God. They want to go to churches that are involved in social activism to eliminate some of these needs that are in community after community after community. I don't want you to hear me say that we shouldn't be involved in ministry to people, but I do want you to hear me to say the core of our ministry to people is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus so people can hear the gospel and be saved. 
Does this make sense to y'all? This is foundational to, to who we are and what we're about. Well, here are some other attributes that God has shared with us. Mercy. We are to treat people in ways they don't deserve to be treated. Just like God has treated us in ways we don't deserve. We're to show compassion. We're to hurt with those who hurt. We're to grieve with those who grieve. We're to show kindness. We're to show grace. And God has shared this with us as his people through his Holy Spirit. And he enables us to express ourselves to others in these ways. So to know God is to know his attributes. To know God is to know him. I think this is very important for us. And I I don't think you can take away any of these. To know God is to know him intellectually through study. You can't know God without studying your, your Bible. It's not possible. And, and to know him with our mind, we're called to love him with our mind. That's our intellect and our brain. To know God is to know him intellectually through study. I'm so glad for Barbara Ann and what she's doing at the health department, and she is, is stretched to the nines during these days, she and the others who work there. I went there to get my vaccine. If somebody had told me, you know, they've got these people working in the health department. They just hired them the other day, and they, they found them outside of KJ's. They don't really know what they're doing. They gave them about 15 minutes, 30 minutes training, and they're throwing needles in people's arms. You know what I'd do? I wouldn't get the vaccine. I want somebody who knows what they're doing. And, and, and when we in the church diminish and there are many churches that diminish the study of God's word they diminish knowing God with our mind I don't want to know God with my mind I just want to love him with my heart you can't love him with your heart if you don't know him with your head to know him volitionally through intentional pursuit of him that's loving him within our heart having a loyalty to him a passion for him and that leads us to love him morally through discipline and devotion. It, it means that we recognize that we belong to him and living as his in the world is hard. It's demanding, but it's worth it. Many, I would argue, but I don't think I can prove this, many, so I won't say most, but I'd like to say that. I believe it's true. Most heresies reduce knowing God to emotional and experiential encounters that are momentary and they produce little lasting change. There are lots of churches that the only way people know God is through creating environments that are intensely emotional. And calling people out of emotional context to make a decision for Jesus that fades over time. So then you've got to have another week of revival or whatever you call it to instigate or infuse more emotion into people. That's, no, that's not knowing God. 
We are to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love God with our emotions. We are to, we are to be moved by this God. But it's more than just loving him emotionally and experientially. Well, let's shift gears to at least make a transition here tonight. Jason, would you help me up here? See if you have any questions here. We're about to talk about the will of God and providence. The will of God and providence. And I want you to, uh, I do want to encourage you to ask questions. If you need to ask questions to, to help me be clear because this is, this is not, uh, I don't think it's hard, but it can be confusing. For some it is, for some it isn't. Uh, for, for some of us in here, when we gave our lives to Jesus, it was intensely emotional. There, there are people who are not wired up emotionally, and for some it's not an overwhelming experience emotionally. Um, the, uh, I'm going to put Ann on the spot. When I, when I gave my life to Jesus, it was intensely emotional because I came out of nowhere to Jesus. Anne grew up in a home, her mother's here. Her mother and daddy taught her about Jesus from before she was born. I don't think she knows a day in her life when she didn't love Jesus. How emotional was it for you, Anne? I just think that uh, there are people who are different. And um, I was telling Ann at lunch today, Ann and her mother at lunch today, when we sang Calvary's Love this morning, I was emotional while we were singing that song. I first heard that song in 1987 and uh, never heard that song before. It's been around a long, long time. And uh, our choir in Fitzgerald sang that song, and it was so beautiful and powerful. And um, then I heard it today. Uh, when our ensemble sang it, and again, I was moved by that song. Um, I was thinking this afternoon, um, this is going to sound weird to some of y'all, but um, uh, I'm one of those, uh, and this has not been true all my ministry. I can tell you this has not been true all my ministry, but for the most part, for the last 25 years, I go to bed on Saturday night so excited, I can't wait for Sunday to come. And I don't sleep well on Saturday night because I'm so excited about Sunday coming. And when I, when I pray on Sunday morning, it is deeply emotional to me. And, and I, I don't make this up. When I sit on that front pew on Sunday morning, I feel that. I feel that. And the, most, the, the deepest thing I feel is, God, why did you choose me to do this because I can't do this? I remember years ago, Matt Green was here preaching, and he leaned over to me during the 
uh, song time, and uh, he said, uh, at what point in your ministry did you stop getting nervous before you preached? And I leaned back to him and said, I'll let you know when that happens. I feel overwhelmed every Sunday, and I feel the emotion of it every Sunday. And, and uh, so I think they're just different, they're different people. That's why, um, that's why, frankly, on Sunday morning, I've got a one-track mind. Um, I had sent Gene the worship bulletin for Palm Sunday and Easter, and I walked into the choir room, and this morning she said, I want to talk to you about that worship bulletin. And I said, next week. We're not going to talk about it now. Because I, I'm so overwhelmed by the, the responsibility. That, that responsibility is. I think any preacher that doesn't feel that needs to walk somewhere. Because <laughs> that's an awesome responsibility. One of, the, one of the reasons I love our Sunday school teachers in this room, I think David Powell feels that responsibility every Sunday when he teaches. And I think Boyce feels that responsibility when you teach. I think Ashley Hammett feels that responsibility. You feel that weight that you are called upon to communicate God's word. That's no game. That's the most serious stuff in the universe. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. If it were complimentary, it goes to my head. If it, if it were, if it were, yeah, if it were one of those uh, fan mail letters, <laughs> it goes to the wrong place, too. So, okay, let's talk about the will of God very quickly. We'll get started. What is the will of God? That's what we're going to talk about. Where is it found? What do we mean by providence, and for whom does providence operate? Well, let's go first to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. This is a very, very critical verse. We're near the end of the last book of the Torah, the last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. Not much left in it from this point, and this is kind of the culmination, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now that word secret uh, can also be translated hidden. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God. Now, let me tell you what that means real simple. They belong to him. They don't belong to us. Because they belong to him and only to him, he doesn't share them with us. They are his. They're the hidden things. They're a part of the will of God that are not made known to us. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are things that are revealed, things that God wants us to know, and they belong to us and they belong to our children forever. How do they belong to our children? Because we teach them. Now, why does God reveal his will and why does God hide his will? This text is clear. He does both. 
He hides his will and he reveals his will. But the important question for us is not why does he hide his will. The question is, why does he reveal it? And he tells us that we may do all the words of the law. God reveals himself to us and his words to us so that we might obey him. Now look at chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. These words, as soon as I start reading them, they should ring a bell in your heart. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we might hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rule, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. For you shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. To give them. That's the old covenant. That's the heart of the old covenants. God says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, and it's all bound up with knowing the will of God as God reveals his will and doing the will of God as God makes it known. Now turn over to Romans 10. This is where it should have rung a bell for you. Romans chapter 10, under the new covenant. Beginning in verse number 5, Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Now listen. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now again, remember what that means is there are no other gods but God. There's no other Lord but Jesus. Caesar says that he is Lord, but if you're a believer, you do not worship at the altar of Caesar. And in that day when you said Jesus is Lord, it could land you in prison or it could cause you to lose your head. This is no mild confession. 
This is the complete commitment of a person's life to the Lordship of Jesus. And why would we commit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus? Because we believe in our hearts at the center of who we are. We believe that Jesus is the only one whom God has raised from the dead. And if we believe in Jesus exclusively, bring our lives under his Lordship, here's the promise of God, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the point is that in Deuteronomy and in Romans, what God makes clear is that God wants us to know him, and God has revealed himself to us. Now, there's a lot about God that we don't know. There's a lot about God we'd like to know. But God has decreed his will from eternity past throughout time into eternity future. Whatever God decrees will come to pass. Now, your question at this point if you're a normal inquiring person, should be, I want to know everything that God has decreed, and what does the Bible say? God's not given you privy to that information. You don't know, and you'll never know everything that God has decreed. When you and I ask why questions about things we don't understand, we are wanting to peer behind the curtains of, or curtain of God's decree. And God won't let us. He asks us to trust him, to trust his greatness and his goodness. Because everything that God wants us to know, he has revealed to us in his word. And we can know everything God wants us to know if we will give ourselves to listening to what God says in his word and learning what he has decreed or what he has revealed. We're going to talk about next Sunday night, we're going to talk about the revealed will of God, those things that God wants us to know. I'm going to quote this next week, but I want to end with it tonight. Um, Someone asked Charles Spurgeon many years ago, uh, said to Charles, said to Dr. Spurgeon, or Reverend Spurgeon, he wasn't a doctor, Reverend Spurgeon, uh, I want to know everything about the will of God for my life. I want to know everything. Spurgeon said, you know, God has made himself known in the Bible, and let me tell you what I'm concerned. I'm concerned about what God has revealed to me that I'm not being faithful to yet. I have enough time being concerned about that without peering behind the curtain and wanting to know those things that, for my own good, God doesn't want me to know. I think sometimes when we think about the will of God, we want to, we want to peer into things that for our own good, God doesn't want us to know. I've heard people say, You know, I wished I knew how my life was going to unfold from now on. I'm glad I don't. I don't want to know. Do you? 
I just want to trust God. Father, we thank you for this day and all that's been a part of this day, gathering this morning to study your word in Sunday school, to to work with preschoolers and children, and to see students being taught your word, to have adult classes gathering, to hear your word taught, to gather before your throne to worship your name. We thank you. We thank you that we can come to the close of the Lord's Day and we can gather once again to study your word together and to learn a little bit more about who you are and how you make yourself known so that what you want us to know about you in terms of your will, you have made known to us. In fact, it's more than probably we really want to know, but it's enough for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and become more of the people you want us to become. Bless our week. Give us opportunities for witness for you. Let us be encouragers to others during this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.